Hey all, this is Glenn Kirshner, and you're listening to Muller She Wrote. So to be clear, Mr. Trump has no financial relationships with any Russian oligarchs. That, that's what he said. I, I, that's what I said. That's obviously what the, the, our position is. I'm not aware of uh, any of those activities. I have been called a surrogate at a time or two in that campaign, and I didn't have not have communications with the Russians. What do I have to get involved with Putin for? I have nothing to do with Putin. I've never spoken to him. I don't know anything about him other than he will respect me. Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing. So, it is political. You're a communist. No, Mr. Green. Communism is just a red herring. Like all members of the oldest profession, I'm a capitalist. Hello, and welcome to Muller She Wrote. I'm your host, Allison Gill, AG. Big show today with a bunch of news from the week and a replay of an interview with Robert Denault for Sabotage that's going to have a massive impact on my Fantasy Indictment League draft this week. So we do have a lot of news to get to, so let's jump in with just the facts. All right, first up from Talking Points Memo. The Treasury Department sanctioned four Ukrainians on Thursday for being alleged FSB pawns, including two people who worked with Paul Manafort in Kyiv. Ukrainian Member of Parliament Ole Volozhin was sanctioned for allegedly working with Russian actors to undermine Ukrainian government officials and advocate on behalf of Russia. Volozhin, in December 2017, published an op-ed ghostwritten by Manafort. Remember, in the Kyiv Post? That's an English-language newspaper in Ukraine. And that effort caused then-special counsel Bob Mueller to argue that Manafort had violated a court order by speaking about his case. And that's when he had the ankle bracelets on and wasn't supposed to be talking, and he wrote an op-ed and it was published by Volosian. Uh, a Russia residing Ukraine national, so this guy lives in Russia, but he's Ukrainian national, named Vladimir Sivkovich, was also sanctioned. At Matafort's 2018 trial in the Eastern District of Virginia, his former employee Rick Gates testified that some of the original people in Manafort's Kiev office included Sivkovich, uh, along with Konstantin Kalimnik, who prosecutors have described as a Russian intelligence officer. Sivkovich fled Ukraine for Russia in February 2014 after the Ukrainian administration for which he worked fired on peaceful protesters in Kyiv. The Treasury Department says that Sivkovich has been working, quote, with a network of Russian intelligence actors, quote, to effect a deal in which Ukraine would accept Russia's annexation of Crimea in return for the removal of Russian-backed troops from the country's east. The sanctions also say that Sivkovich played a role in two separate U.S.-focused disinformation campaigns. The first, the Treasury says, involved another sanctioned Ukrainian member of parliament, Andriy Derkach, who met with Rudy Giuliani, did a podcast in December 2019, as former President Trump sought dirt on Joe Biden. Derkach also released supposed tapes of Biden during the 2020 campaign. The Treasury does not specify what other influence operation targeted the United States, just the one. Sivkovich was involved in, um, saying only that it lasted from 2019 to 2020. <laughs> and Manafort did not return an emailed request for comment to, to Talking Points Memo. Voloshin told Talking Points Memo, I've never in my life contacted anyone from FSB, at least knowingly, he, he adds. And the reason I was giggling there, this timing of the, these sanctions is very interesting, given 
what is being investigated in the Eastern District uh, of New York right now as far as Ukraine and 2016 and 2020 election interference, excuse me, 2020 election interference and, and Rudy's sweeping investigation going on in the Southern District of New York, Rudy Giuliani and his ties to Durkacz and Furtosh and fraud guarantee and and uh, trying to get Masha Yovanovitch removed and, and possibly even targeted, uh, we don't know. But the sanctions is interesting because, as we know, tons of information was just handed over to the Department of Justice by Special Master Barbara Jones, who's going through Rudy's cell phones and computers as we speak. An interesting little nugget, for some reason, there's a bunch of Secret Service agents outside of John Bolton's house right now, and several giant black bags have left the residence. I have no idea what's in them, but it's weird. I don't know if he's cooperating with those investigations about Ukraine. He was there for a lot of it. Or if it's something completely different, we don't know. But also today from the New York Times, the British government said Saturday that Kremlin was developing plans to install a pro-Russian leader in Ukraine and had already chosen a potential candidate as President Vladimir Putin weighs whether to order the Russian forces amassed on Ukraine's border to attack. The highly unusual public communique by the UK's Foreign and Commonwealth Office, issued late at night in London, comes at a moment of high-stakes diplomacy between Kremlin and the West. Russia has deployed more than 100,000 Russian troops on Ukraine's borders that could, according to American officials, attack any moment. Quote, the information being released today shines a light on the extent of Russian activity designed to subvert Ukraine and is an insight into Kremlin thinking. That's Liz Truss, Britain's foreign secretary, and she said that in a statement um, last week. Russia must de-escalate, end its campaigns of aggression and disinformation, and pursue a path of diplomacy. Easy to ask for, right? Uh, the British announcement was the second time in just over a week that a Western power had publicly accused Russia of meddling in Ukraine's internal affairs, part of a concerted effort to pressure Mr. Putin to de-escalate. On January 14th, the United States accused the Kremlin of sending saboteurs into eastern Ukraine to create a provocation that could serve as a pretext for the invasion. And in other news... A Russian businessman with close ties to Russian President Vladimir Putin, who is accused of being involved in insider trading and hacking, will be detained pending trial. Oh, gosh, who could have seen uh, Vladislav Klyushin as a flight risk? <laughs> He's 41. He sought to be released pending his trial in Boston. He proposed a $2.5 million bond comprised of properties in Russia and the UK, as well as hiring private guards to ensure his presence in court. But Magistrate Judge Marianne Bowler denied bail, saying Kluzhin had absolutely no incentive to remain in the country. Quote, this court is not convinced that the defendant, who is an individual well-versed in sophisticated financial matters, has access to substantial financial resources and absolutely no ties to this country, will appear as required. She also cited the lack of any extradition treaty with Russia and the difficulty of seizing his London property if he fled the country as two of the reasons to also deny his release. And... In another story, even Russia thinks Tucker Carlson, who has been called Tuckio Rose, by the way, uh, even even Russia thinks well, he's a little too far out there for even us. Uh, but they do love him with Russian troops again amassing on the Ukraine border uh, and looming threat of an invasion that the White House has described as imminent. Fox News host Tucker Carlson would have you look the other way. Actually, even go beyond that. He would have you root for Russia. During an episode on his Monday show, Carlson pondered, why is it disloyal to side with Russia, but loyal to side with Ukraine? Three years earlier, Carlson admitted that he is rooting for Russia 
in its conflict with Ukraine. He said in part several years ago, why do I care what's going on in the conflict between Ukraine and Russia? And I'm serious. Why do I care? Why should I root? Why shouldn't I root for Russia, which I am? Now, facing criticism back then, he walked back his comments and claimed he was joking. In 2022, though, he is unabashedly pushing the talking points favored by the Kremlin and no longer making excuses. He's going so far as to support the Russian propaganda narrative that prominent personalities on the Kremlin-funded state television are concerned about his future in the United States. Last Sunday, one of Russia's most-watched television networks, Channel One, played a clip from Carlson's show where he argued that Russia's anger at NATO's alleged involvement in Ukraine was well-justified. Reporter Ivan Blagoy then noted the Fox News host is predictably being accused of playing along with Moscow. Broadcasting in the same translated clip uh, of Carlson's last week on Russian's second most-watched television network, Rossiya One, a host of 60 Minutes, Evgeny Popov fawned over Carlson by describing him as one of, the, one of the voices of truth and reason and complained that the host of the most-watched show in all of cable news with millions of viewers is being silenced and marginalized. In 2020, Popoff demonstrated his affinity for Carlson by introducing him as practically our co-host. That's Russian state television. Now, last Wednesday, Russia's English-language state media outlet RT published an op-ed by Irish commentator Graham Dockery, who marveled, quote, Once considered a sewer pipe of neoconservative jingoism, Fox News is now anti-war, or at least its top-rated host is. The picture is clear when it comes to Ukraine. Pundits and commentators from the establishment left to the neocon right only disagree on how quickly and strongly the U.S. should wade in to stop a potential Russian invasion of Ukraine. Only Carlson, considered far right by American liberals, is in complete opposition to U.S. involvement. RT's writer complained, The sole anti-war voice on primetime cable happens to belong to a man whom liberals believe is a white supremacist, thus undermining his considerable influence. Yeah, it's the liberals that undermine Tucker Carl's significance. In the same day, opposing U.S. intervention against Russian aggression, Carlson prodded his audiences by claiming you're currently funding a proxy battle in Ukraine against the nuclear-armed Russian military that could very well erupt into a hot war that includes you, the United States. The tactic of terrorizing American audiences with the possibility of nuclear war in order to undermine U.S. support for Ukraine has been repeatedly discussed by experts on Russian state television. Portraying Ukraine as a significant country of no important, insignificant country as of no importance to the United States, unworthy of such an alleged risk, Carlson derided and said, they're just a small corrupt nation. Why should we talk about going to nuclear? Why should we threaten ourselves with nuclear war? On Thursday, Carlson reiterated the same slight and described Ukraine, the largest state entirely within Europe and the second largest on the continent after Russia, as a pretty small country. He added, Vladimir Putin is our most dangerous enemy. They scream, we can't let him hurt Ukraine. So it turns out Russiagate was actually more effective than we'd realized. <laughs> so now he's saying the Trump-Russia investigation is what turned the liberals against Russia. The Steele dossier has been debunked, but in Washington, the theme remains in force. Russia, Russia, Russia. Russia's bad. What is this about exactly? Well, obviously, it's the usual collection of children falling for the usual collection of lies. But why this specific lie? And he later added, you still have to wonder, invasion or not, why is any of this a profound concern of ours? Why would you even consider risking American lives for sending billions of dollars to stop it? Earlier in January, Russian Defense Minister Sergei Shoigu asserted... Russia can't afford to lose the information war against the West. 
It certainly does, doesn't hurt to have a major media personality broadcasting propaganda that benefits Moscow directly to millions of Americans. That's what he said about Tucker. And Natalie Mayflower Sowers Edwards, a senior government official who blew the whistle on money laundering in major Western banks, uh, has been released from federal prison this evening after spending about five months behind bars for disclosing government documents to journalists. Edwards was released about a month earlier than she expected. She'll be on probation for three years. Uh, Edwards, while working for the U.S. Treasury Department, shared a trove of confidential documents with BuzzFeed News, prompting an international investigation that showed how some of the world's largest financial institutions facilitated the work of terrorists, kleptocrats, and drug kingpins. Those records formed the basis of the FinCEN Files, an investigative series produced by a partnership among more than 100 news organizations that offered an unprecedented view of global corruption. The journalists used thousands of suspicious activity reports, or SARS, and secret Treasury Department documents provided by Edwards to reveal staggering sums of dirty money flowing through banks. The story prompted significant changes in the financial industry and were cited with giving a final push to the most substantial revision to the anti-money laundering laws in decades. The FinCEN stories were a finalist for the Pulitzer. And unlike more celebrated whistleblowers, Edwards may not be familiar to most folks. They are probably to listeners of this program. She is. Uh, the Washington Post has called her one of the most important whistleblowers of our era, and yet hardly anyone remembers her name. After Edwards was sentenced, BuzzFeed News Editor-in-Chief Mark Schuefs called on Joe Biden to pardon her. The Biden administration should acknowledge in word and deed that individuals who reveal information of vital public importance are not criminals, Schuefs wrote in a New York Times opinion piece. They are patriots who deserve our gratitude. Edwards says she released the documents to BuzzFeed News reporter Jason Leopold after trying in vain to raise alarms at the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network at FinCEN, the branch of the Treasury. She was like waving her arms like, hey, hey, hey. And nobody was listening. She's like, fine, fuck it. Gave him to Jason Leopold. Department prosecutors said that Edwards was blinded by her own apparent sense of self-righteousness and called the disclosure unparalleled in FinCEN's history. Oh, she was just propelled, blinded by her own doing the right thing. Mounting a legal defense cost Edwards and her husband, Dave, their home, their car, their health insurance, and most of their savings. Edwards maintained she was acting in the interest of the American people. Quote, this chapter is officially closed, she told BuzzFeed News shortly after she left prison. I will not be silenced anymore. My story will be told. Best of luck to her in the future. Hello, I'm Jeff Stein. And I'm Jean Meserve. Together, we host the Spy Talk podcast. Every week, we delve into the worlds of intelligence, foreign policy, military operations, and the intersection of all three in national security issues. Spycraft, cybersecurity, violent extremism, whether at home or abroad, technology's impact on intelligence gathering. We cover it all and much more. We interview former spooks, military officers, government officials, journalists, and national security researchers, leveraging our backgrounds in military intelligence and homeland security, along with our decades of experience as journalists and news organizations like Newsweek, The Washington Post, and CNN. So join us every Thursday for a new episode of Spy Talk, available wherever you get your podcasts. All right, as promised, it's time for Sabotage. (music) 
Everybody, welcome back. Happy to be joined today by my friend, expert of the Middle District of Florida, also known as Tallahassee High School, <laughs> actual real life lawyer now, independent journalist, Robert Denault. Robert, hello. Hi, how are you? Good. I can never get that out of my head. It's a high school that no one ever graduates from. <laughs> right. They, they graduate, they spend a year doing something corrupt, and then they go to jail. <laughs> Which is what's going on today, because we have a new update. The last update in the Matt Gates story, outside of Greenberg having a sentencing pushback again to March, was that one of his ex-girlfriends, who was on the three-way call trying to intimidate the woman who at the time was 18, but had previously been with apparently allegedly with Matt Gates when she was a minor and was, you know, sex trafficked, et cetera. Again, that's all alleged. She had gotten an immunity deal and had testified to the grand jury. And now so we were all waiting to see what was going to happen next. And this week I drafted a woman named L.A. Key and a guy named Angles to my fantasy indictment league. But I did not draft Ellicott. Tell us who Joe Big Joe Ellicott is and what uh, role he plays in the Tallahassee High School. Yeah, so so Joe Ellicott is a, a friend of Joel Greenberg's. They've been friends for a pretty long time, uh, I believe as far back as maybe even high school. He was in Joel Greenberg's wedding, uh, from what I understand. And so the two of them were kind of cronies, and he actually worked as a deputy, you know, I, I believe it was thought that he was a deputy tax collector under Joel. But the indictment or plea agreement today identified him as sort of a contract specialist, something like that. Uh, so, you know, he, he got some job in the tax collector's office and, and made some money when Joel uh, held that position. Um, and today it came out that he is pleading guilty to two counts. Uh, one, a fraud scheme involving the tax collector's office and phony contracts that he helped Joel facilitate with an unknown conspirator who is written by prosecutors as the, quote, contractor conspirator, and uh, another charge for dealing Adderall and narcotics uh, down in Florida. Now, I have not reviewed the charging documents. Does the contractor conspirator have pronouns? No. No pronouns. Very careful not to give any clues. Although uh, we know that the contractor conspirator and their company entered into a contract, uh, one of many of this kind, with Joel's office in January 2017 and was paid inflated uh, invoices. You know, we can get into the details and the nitty gritty, but this is sort of the type of stuff you and I have been talking about for about six to eight months. I, I have been telling you that I think this whole case is going to go down this road of these fake contracts that Joel Greenberg used to pay other Republicans, friends, and potentially, you know, politically powerful people in Florida who seem to be siphoning taxpayer money through Joel Greenberg. So do you know of any, you know, these two that I mentioned, Key and Engels, have you seen through your research anything that might suggest that the contracted co-conspirator who Ellicott just basically helped set up these payments for Anything indicating that it might be either one of them, like perhaps the date you said when they entered into the contract in January of 2017 or any other sort of clues that, that you've been able to, to piece together to say who this other person is? Because I'm assuming that contractor is going to be our next indictment out of the Middle District of Florida. 
Right. So great question. It, it leapt off the page at me as soon as I saw those words, contractor, conspirator. And so my brain immediately started thinking, is this is this LA key? Is this another contractor? Because there's many and I'll go through the list of, of people it, <laughs> it could be. But I, you know, I think that the January 2017 date is important. I don't believe the LA key contract was drafted until February 2017. I remember making a document request to the Seminole County Tax Collector's Office when I first started writing about this case. And uh, due to open records, you know, laws in Florida, they had to provide that contract. And I remember it being dated February 2017. It might not have even been dated with a specific date, the version I got, but the month on it was February. So I think that kind of suggests that's not this contract. But this whole, you know, the big question we've sort of wrestled with in our conversations, and I think I've said it a few times, is that fraud here is the big question. How do you make this case? You know, can prosecutors make a case that there is a theory of fraud that applies here and, and that federal criminal law made this illegal? And today's plea reveals that they feel that they can stand on that ground about some of these contracts. It doesn't mean it'll apply to everyone. But if I'm a contract holder who has one of these suspicious contracts and got some some strange money from Joel Greenberg in his tenure, I am absolutely terrified right now that they're digging through these contracts and they are trying to get cooperators who are going to explain to them what their theories of fraud can be. And not only that, but cooperators who can help them in their discussions about sex trafficking a minor or witness intimidation, which apparently this particular Ellicott person was able to sort of uh, give some information on from from my understanding, because Greenberg standalone crap witness. I mean, this guy is a bad dude. And while witness testimony is important and he led, you know, prosecutors and was given a huge break, like 26 counts was, were peeled off of right. his indictment to lead them in the right direction. His testimony alone, I you know, I would be wary of using his testimony alone as a prosecutor. So when you bring in the ex-girlfriend and Ellicott, who doesn't sound like the raddest dude either. But if you start getting a bunch of people who are willing to say the same thing, even if they're like half credible dickheads, you know, 12 half credible dickheads makes like, you know, three credible people. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And, and I think the other good point is that there's, you know, corroborating evidence put in that doesn't involve testimony. It's phone calls. And, you know, it's a story of, well, I think we went and called so-and-so right after the cash was delivered. And then you see in the charging document, yes, that's corroborated by phone record evidence. You know, this call was made just minutes before, you know, a deposit or an hour before a deposit was made. That was in one of the <laughs> the documents today. It was like <laughs> uh, cash was delivered. Joel called contractor conspirator. They spoke for four minutes. And then an hour later, a deposit was made. And it's like, wow, okay, you know, you can be two boneheads, but if all the records show that this story bears out, it makes that much easier to say, look, who do you believe to a jury? And, you know, just the breadth of this, I don't know if it has struck people quite yet how far the tentacles of this could reach. I mean, these contracts, they went you know, to, to a number of Florida Republicans who are either currently in office or have recently held office, uh, are lobbyists, um, are political consultants. And one of them was a secretary of state for Ron DeSantis for three weeks before he resigned over a blackface scandal. 
But I mean, you know, these people, I, this is really far reaching. And, and to see the first charge that has come to fruition and see a theory of federal criminal law that applies here, I, I think we're getting toward the end game here where a lot will come out. Yeah. And, and speaking of that, did you see any contracts that were entered into, you know, existence with the Seminole Tax County? Uh, office of Joel Greenberg in January of 2017. Did you did were you able to make any connections like that? And then, second of all, you were going to give me a list of of suspicious contractors that we just that we know about. Yeah, so I'll start with that because I haven't gone through every single one for days. And there are good resources out there. You know, the Orlando Sentinel began with audits uh, a couple years ago about this kind of spending, and so there's good articles out there. WFTV actually cornered. L.A. Key, this woman, her husband, who was the registered agent for the business that made the contract uh, with Joel's office, and uh, he, you know, he couldn't answer basic questions about what work they had done. He said consulting, and they said, "Can you elaborate on that?" He said, "No," <laughs> you know, and he, mm. it's uh, it's pretty bad. So here's here's a list, you know, that they sort of had assembled. First, you know, MAGA Advisory Limited. That was the that was the company that we said was affiliated with with L.A. Key. This woman who's sort of a MAGA person. Uh, she inked a contract with Joel Greenberg's office in February 2017. She had a business with Jacob Engels. It was supposed to be a nonprofit raising funds for victims of Hurricane Irma, I think. But it was existed at the same exact time. And so there's you know obviously what what sort of work product did she do? They were paid on a monthly retainer. I believe she also received a salary from the office. So maybe you know, could look into that. We have uh, Florida Republican Anthony Sabatini, his law firm, inked a contract with Joel's office. Florida Republican Matt Morgan, who was a former mayor, I think he ran for commissioner in Seminole County. He was paid $40,000 for an unknown project and uh, around the same time was able to clear a $37,000 tax lien so he could run for office. <laughs> Florida Republican lobbyist Chris Dorward his company uh, that he had worked for and resigned since this Matt Gates scandal has broken, did lobbying work for the office. Um, Megan Zalanka, she worked for Jason Pirazzolo. Uh, he was a doctor who's also affiliated with Matt Gates and went on that Bahamas trip. She had a consulting firm that got a contract from Joel's office. Eric Fogelsong, a political consultant who provided support to sort of a mysterious independent candidate, one of those you know candidates with similar names who ran and maybe acted as a spoiler candidate in state Senate elections. Uh, he had a contract with Joel's office and Republican Mike Ertel, who was the person, he was the former Seminole County Supervisor of Elections. And he was appointed by Ron DeSantis to serve as Secretary of State until he resigned shortly later, you know, I think a very short period of time over a base scandal. And that's just, you know, the people who were reported on by Orlando Sentinel or, or WFTV. I, I, it could, and that should scare people. I mean, that is a massive list of power brokers across Florida. Yeah. And they're not just nobodies, you know. And then, of course, you and I talked briefly about these other real estate scam things that sort of were run that, that required false identifications that may or may not have needed to come out of the Seminole Tax Office, but we weren't able to make any connections with those. But they did have, it was just an interesting timing with the real estate tax fraud schemes. So, wow. Okay. So now I've got uh, these whoa, six people <laughs> and then Angles and LA Key, seven, eight. I'm going to have to, I'm going to, I'm going to need a bigger fantasy indictment draft to hold all these names. But would you assume that before we see a Matt Gates indictment, that we'll see 
at least some of these other indictments first, perhaps that they're trying to get more corroborating witnesses or I mean, a lot of these folks might not have any idea about the witness intimidation or the sex trafficking of a minor or the bribery schemes for the marijuana laws or whatever else Matt Gates is wrapped up in with campaign finance violations. And so, you know, maybe at some point the investigation sort of branches off into the Gates side and then the rest of these jokers who still need to be investigated for their potential fraudulent contracts with the Seminole County Tax Collector's Office. Yeah, I think that is right. I, I was reading the Washington Post article about this development today. I think it was the Washington Post. It was either them or the New York Times. And they indicated there are two separate investigations that D.C. prosecutors are in Florida investigating the sex trafficking issue, but that local, more local prosecutors are handling the financial parts of this. And it's not to say there's not intersection, but I think you're right to note that not every one of these people may have even been aware of what was going on in the party scene that was Florida. Now, it seems like this guy, Joe Ellicott, based on the statements his attorney made today, was aware of that and did have some involvement in that party scene. But I don't think that means everybody who got a strange contract from Joel was was part of that. So I think it's fair to, to say you might see some charges on the financial side of this before you see that. That being said, you know, presenting people to the grand jury is a, is a serious move. And to see, uh, you know, Matt Gates's ex go in there and testify to a grand jury, I, they, they feel, you know, comfortable putting her in front of there with an immunity deal for a reason. So they're building something. What it is or whether they'll get a grand jury indictment still remains to be seen. But they're not they're, they're not uh, at the beginning of that process. That's that's mm. for sure. Yeah. And then if none, if none of these other folks have any f- additional information that would be beneficial to the Matt Gates investigation, then, you know, like you said, it, the Matt Gates indictment could drop tomorrow uh, before any of these other indictments drop, if there are indictments to be had in these other places. I mean, we're just all being extremely speculative here, but it seems to me that because I felt with the ex-girlfriend's testimony, like that's all you need. Like I felt like that was enough. But I mean, if there are other people who have additional information, you're going to want to wrap that all up in your case before you put the charges out. Yeah, I think that's true. One really interesting thing that I don't know would have occurred to me until I started to actually work in law. (laughs) Uh, I think that there's a statute of limitations concept going here. It's been five years since Joel took office. And five years is the statute of limitations for most federal crimes. So I noticed in the in the deal today was about a January 2017 contract. And so, you know, it doesn't mean that January 2017 was necessarily the last date, you know, that you could have to charge that. But there may be some impetus to go up to these months where these contracts were inked or something like that. You know, gather as much evidence as you can until you have to bring the charge. We're almost at the five year mark for some of these things. So if you're at that point, why not use every week you can to make a more airtight case? I think that that goes to all of us being a bit more patient. You know, complicated case. It's sprawling. They've got a lot on their hands, obviously. So let them make it as strong as they can because they're running up against the clock on somebody's charge. Yeah, true. And and also just because the, the contract was inked in January 2017, if payments continue mm-hmm. to be made past that or 
or if you know the shaft stops but the crime continues you sure. know or or you you don't become aware of the fraud until a certain you know a certain discovery of it and then the statute of limitations start the clock starts ticking but yeah i can see how and you know especially given the child sex trafficking charge but i don't think that carries a statute of limitations yeah. i'm not sure i would have to look that up but the, yeah I, that makes sense now that you you january 2017 that's now yeah that's right now <laughs> and it's for the fraud i mean i think you know you're right the other serious stuff may have longer statutes of limitations i know like conspiracy to defraud the united states i think has a has a longer i think maybe seven years or something like that so you know it's possible if they were going for really big charges uh, or some sort of scheme they may you know get a, a bigger window to bring that but i think on some of these fraud things especially where they don't get a cooperator and all they have is a sham contract or one or two payments, those they may run into to statute of limitations concerns on soon. So, you know, it's just something to think about in the equation of where their heads might be at on bringing, bringing charges and unsealing. Oh, very good point. Well, thank you for this update. We really appreciate it. This is going to run on the beans. I'm probably going to run it on Mueller. She wrote for the fantasy indictment league this weekend too, but really great information. And, um, we're going to have to publish this list of funky contracts yeah. <laughs> yeah. on Twitter. And the, and the, and the Venmo contacts. Uh, you know, gosh, Gase wasn't the only one. I think Sabatini was also in there. These were contacts of, of Joe Ellicott's on Venmo that we, we went through today very quickly and found. Well, maybe that's what the contracts were for, was for to get Adderall from the DJ. <laughs> Like, literally, it's lazy even for Florida. Like, it's, it's, oh man, don't use Venmo to commit your crimes. Yeah, somebody asked me on Twitter, like, what kind of dumbass buys Adderall off of uh, <laughs> off of Venmo? I said the same dumbass that buys women off of Venmo. Yeah, probably. yeah, <laughs> I, it's, it's terrible. I, I, and you can still go on and find their accounts. I, That's what <laughs> blew me away when you sent me the photo. I'm like, why is he? Why is he not unfriended? But you know what I've realized is that if you deleted it while under scrutiny, <gasps> they maybe could say it was obstructed. Oh, yeah, very true. I, I think it would be a long shot. I doubt they would do it. But it, they've done that for, you know, other cases. If you delete both or you try to delete your stuff. I would. I'd be like, you know what? I've already obstructed. I've already obstructed. Might as well just keep obstructing. <laughs> I, I, get rid of your Venmo. That's really, <laughs> that's pretty much it. <laughs> anyway, thank you for talking today. Everybody follow on Twitter, Robert Denault. You come out with the stuff so fast and it's so fun to follow you. And again, congratulations on passing the bar. I know it's been a while and I know you've done it since we've talked, yeah. but we'll, we'll bring you back on soon because I feel like the, like I'm with you. This is, this case is at the end of its road whether it's the one investigation or now it's split off into sort of two more local money fraud contract stuff and the Matt Gates stuff. We'll see what happens. But I appreciate your time. Thank you. I can't wait to come back. It's time for the Fantasy Indictment League. I'm going to be indicted. No, it is going to be a... Indicted! Honey, dick. Indicted! I'm going to be indicted! Oh, they can't. It's going to be okay. Just calm down. I can't calm down. I'm going to be indicted! A quick note for our Fantasy Indictment League listeners. Igor Fruman of the Parnason Fruman Show has been sentenced to one year in federal prison for his role in campaign finance violations. This has nothing to do with Rudy, right? This is just campaign finance violations. Uh, and this week, uh, because of what I spoke to Denault about, I'm going for a Florida sweep. I'm going to go with L.A. Key. Engels, Sabatini, Morgan, Dorworth, Zolanka, Fogelsong, Ertel, 
and of course Matt Gates. And then I'm going to add Rudy for good measure. So I hope they're uh, ready. Uh, I hope they're packed. They've got something comfortable to wear um, when they're picked up, which I think should be pretty soon. And I'm not trying to peddle hope. I just really <laughs> I think it's going to be pretty soon. So we'll see. We'll see. We give a nice shot in the arm to the Justice Department who's been under a lot of scrutiny lately for their silence, which they're supposed to have. But regardless, um, that is, those are my picks, and uh, that's the show. Look for the latest MSW Book Club on Corruptible out today. And I'll be joined by Laura Coates tomorrow to talk about her new book, and we're going to be talking on The Daily Beans. Until then, please take care of yourselves, take care of each other, take care of the planet, and take care of your mental health. I've been A.G., and this is Muller She Wrote. Muller She Wrote is written and produced by Allison Gill in partnership with MSW Media. Sound design and engineering are by Molly Hockey. Jesse Egan is our copywriter and our art and web designer by Joel Reeder at Moxie Design Studios. Muller She Wrote is a proud member of MSW Media, a group of creator-owned podcasts focused on news, justice, and politics. For more information, visit mswmedia.com. S.W. Media.